you guys would take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. I said all this last week for those who are here uh, for the first time, and if you're here for the first time this morning, just to give you a heads up about what we do when we do things. I mean, Katie already mentioned that we have missional community groups starting up this week, but just so you know what we do in here when we meet in here. So um, this is what we do on Sunday mornings. I mean, we, you'll find the table set up like this, and we, we worship and we just get in the Word. And, and normally on Sunday mornings, we're studying through, just over the school year or whatever, studying through a book of the Bible. And normally in the summers, it's an Old Testament book. If you ever hear in the summer, it's a cool time to be in Auburn, but we study through the old, an Old Testament book, so we just finished a study through Exodus. And then the New Testament in fall, spring. So last year we did a study through Revelation. And this Sunday, I mean this, this year it's, uh, it's through the book of Romans. And we'll go straight through it. And uh, that way you know that when you come back next week, you know we're going to pick up right where we left off. And then also on Wednesdays, Katie mentioned that um, our Wednesday night Bible study starts, our normal Wednesday night Bible study starts back this week at 8 o'clock, this Wednesday. And we'll be in here, we'll worship again um, uh, in music, but then we'll get in the Word. And a lot of times on Wednesday nights, it's topical. It's some, uh, you know, just some topic we're exploring for a few weeks. But this, this year, I just felt uh, impressed by the Holy Spirit to, to teach through the parables of Jesus. Uh, I'm really excited about this. I, 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 I said this uh, this past Wednesday night. We had a pancake dinner. But, like, the parables to me sort of um, give a window into what life with him, life following him, life uh, sort of life in his kingdom looks like, what, what the way of life, what following him and living as a as a citizen of his kingdom, even as we live physically in the midst of a different kingdom? What does that look like in real life? I think the, the parables give us a window into that. So I hope you'll be here for that. All right, Romans chapter 1. Um, we're picking up where we left off last week. And so our passage this morning is ver- chapter 1, verse 8 through verse 17. And we'll, I'll read it and then we'll dive in. So Paul writes, First, I thank my God... Through Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may... Be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, 
sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, I ask that you would give, um, give us all eyes to see the truth that you've revealed to us in these words. Would you also give us minds to understand the truth that you've revealed to us here? Would you give us hearts to embrace it and love it? Would you give us wills to obey and heed whatever it is that it admonishes us to do? Would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us? Would you give me the help that I need to teach? And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we looked at the very opening verses of this letter last week. And if you missed that and would like to listen to it, just mind we do have a, a podcast, the Lakeview College Ministry Podcast. You can, uh, you can find that on Apple, Apple Podcasts. You can, whatever, just if you want to listen to it, you'll find it. Um, so what, what I, and you can tell, by the way, just from where we picked up and what I just read, you can tell that our passage today is, is in a sense, finishing up just his introductory words to the letter and then, and then ending with this, this basically thesis for the whole letter, verses 16 and 17. But it's, so it's like miscellaneous introduction stuff and then some really good meat in the last two verses of our passage. So what I want to do this morning, all Scripture is, is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and for correction and reproof for training in righteousness. So um, I'm not going to skip right to verses 16 and 17 because that's where the meat is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to try to um, take note of all that Paul says here. Um, and for that reason, the, what, we, what I bring out of this passage may not seem completely cohesive. It's going to sound, the first couple of points are going to sound a little bit here and there, but we'll land on the gospel in the third point. So if you're taking note, um, here's, here's, here's what I want us to see. And we'll try to camp out the majority of our time on the third point. We're going to sort of, like I said, divide it up into three parts. And here's, here's how, we're, how we're going to do it. Verses 8 through 12, uh, I want to say a quick word about Paul's prayers. Paul's prayers in verses 8 through 12. So in typical fashion, if you're familiar with Paul's letters, Paul begins this one with a prayer for the people, or at least telling them what he often prays for them, uh, what he's praying for. And so Paul's prayers in verses 8 through 12, we'll, we'll note something there. Then verses 13 to 15, we'll quickly consider Paul's plans. Paul's plans. What, he's talking about coming to visit them, and what does he hope to get out of a visit to that church in Rome? I'll just say a word about that, Paul's plans. And then finally, we're going to spend some time in verses 16 and 17 about Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel. These two verses, verses 16 and 17, are in a very real sense the thesis, the thesis of the whole letter to the Romans. Um, is it, verses 16 and 17 are, it, they lay out in very short way what he's going to spend the next 14 chapters, 15 chapters defending and explaining. So that's where we're headed. So let's dive in and think first about Paul's prayers in verses 8 through 12. So you can see early on how Paul is doing that, that he is praying for them or at least telling them how he prays for them. I mean, he says... In verse 8, he begins with this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. So he's, I, I thank my God. That's a prayer. That's prayer language. And then in verses 9 and 10, at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10, he says, he mentions that, that without ceasing, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. 
And I think, I think in what he says about his prayers for them, he emphasizes two noteworthy things for us to consider. Like, one, I think he highlights the pathway of his prayers, the pathway of his prayers, and the other is the purpose of his prayers for them. The pathway and the purpose of his prayers for the Romans. And let me explain what I mean by that and what we can learn from it. So, first, Paul makes clear in these verses the pathway of his prayers. By which I mean how he comes to God in prayer. How he expects his prayers to be heard and, and answered. The path, he, he makes very clear the pathway that God has opened for him to even come to God in prayer for them. And, uh, and it, it's not going to be anything new to a, to a Christian. It's going, to be, it's going to be sort of intuitive to a Christian what I'm about to say it's a basic truth of Christianity, but anytime I, even though that, that being the case, I think when it's emphasized like it is here, we need to say something about it. Um, and, and to see that in the best way, um, and, and to see how Paul does emphasize it here, compare what he says about praying for them here, or at least how he starts talking about that, to the way he does it to a lot of his other letters that he wrote. Okay? So just... You can jot these references down or just listen. But this, this is how he does it when he talks to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1.4, 1 Corinthians 1.4, he simply says, I give thanks to my God for you. I give thanks to my God for you. 1 Corinthians 1.4. To the church in Ephesus, he says in Ephesians 1.10, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's how he says it. Just let this wash over you, and, and, and we're going to compare what he says here to what he says, what he says in these to what he says here. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for all of you making my prayer with thanksgiving. And lastly, 1 Thessalonians 1.2, we give thanks to God for all of you, constantly mentioning you in, in our prayers. I mean, all of those sound essentially the same. I mean, except there is one clear difference in what he says here than what he said to all of those other churches. He, may, he says it slightly differently in Romans. Whereas all of those, to all of those other churches, Paul simply says, I thank God for you. I pray, I pray for you. I mention you always in my prayers, and I thank God for you. In Romans 1.8, he is much more specific to say, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. For you. That is a phrase that he did not put in any of those other letters to any of those other churches. He makes a point to say, I pray. When I thank God, I'm, I'm praying through Jesus Christ for all, for all of you. Now, that is not to say that that wasn't true in all of those other letters. That, that's the only way uh, anybody can come to God in prayer. But Paul here to the Romans, as he's writing and he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit to write, he felt compelled under the Holy Spirit, to say explicitly, when I pray and when I give thanks to God for you, I come through Jesus Christ. I come through Jesus Christ. This, that's why I said this is basic Christianity. Like This, this shouldn't, even, even if you've been here last week and you saw the opening words of this letter, the introduction we saw last week, on that, on that count, it shouldn't be surprising that he says this. Because if you'd pay careful attention to what he said, he made clear in verses 1 and 2 that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And this, in verse 
three, excuse me, I said two, but three, that this gospel of God, it was concerning His Son, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. And even in verse 9 here, He says, He refers to the gospel of His Son. The, what it, why am I belaboring this? The point is, Paul is setting the stage. And if you're familiar with the book of Romans, if you're familiar with the first three chapters, remember chapter 1 is going to be about Gentiles uh, and, and, and their separation from God. Chapter 2 is going to be about Jews and how they are separated from God even though they have the law. Chapter 3 is going to culminate with what we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like, you're going to see this case building, chapter 1, Gentiles, chapter 2, Jews, chapter 3, all of us. You can see how he gives echoes of that ahead of time in these opening verse, verses that he is saying in this unique way that he doesn't say to all the other churches, it doesn't matter if you are an apostle, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, no matter who you are, the only mediator between God and men is the man Christ Jesus. No one, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through Him. And Paul's going to have plenty to, uh, to say about that basic Christian truth in this letter, but he demonstrates it here. I thank my, he doesn't just say, I thank my God for you. He said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And that's why prayer is, prayer at all is such a gift. None of us has a right to be heard by God. None of us has a, has a, None of us has a right to, uh, to even expect to be heard or certainly to be answered in anything we ask. No, when we, when we, we shouldn't expect to be heard or answered when we presume to come to God in our own way or flippantly rather than the way He made for us at great cost to Himself. All right, so that's His pathway in prayer. But it's also, I think, noteworthy to, to see the purpose of His prayers for them. Again, it's really basic, but it has an application for us for sure. So other than giving thanks for them and giving thanks for the things he'd heard about them in, in his prayers, what are Paul's prayers for them here essentially about? What, is, what has he so earnestly been praying for in this opening prayer? Basically, that God would make a way for him to physically go to Rome and see them face to face. He had never met this church. He'd never met the believers there. And, and basically, he says over and over again, I've been praying for you constantly, and here's what I've been praying about, that God would make a way that I could come and see you. He says that explicitly in verse 10, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He says in verse 11, I long to see you. He'll even say in verse 13 that he had tried many times to come to them before, but by whatever means, he doesn't specify watch, he had been prevented from coming to see them. And then he says, if you'll notice very carefully, he says, why does he want to come to see them? He says in verses 11 and 12 that there is something to be gained from that face-to-face -face meeting that he can't have apart from it. He says... What do I mean by that? He says in verse 11 and 12 that if God grants it that I can come and see you, I hope to bring you some spiritual gift. He says in verse 11, I long to see you. Why? So that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. And he, he immediately clarifies what that gift is in verse 12. That is 
that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul, in saying that, he is saying there is a gift that is just sitting out there to be had that I can't have unless I'm with you face to face. There is, there is an encouragement that I can receive from you, and there's an encouragement that you can receive from me that's just sitting out there to be had that we can't, we can't fully experience unless we're physically there together. I point all that out to say simply this. Nothing really has changed about human nature and human wiring from that day that Paul wrote that to today. Um, sure, clearly, they had the medium of letters to, to, to communicate to each other when they weren't physically there. It's not like Paul had no communication with the Romans. He wrote a letter, and then Phoebe took that letter to Rome. Right? And so they had, he could hear from them, they could hear from him in letter form. Uh, and obviously, we have advanced technologically way beyond that. I mean, like, we have cell phones that go with us wherever I may, my feet will take me to go. I have a cell phone with me. I, I, not only can I call, I can, I can text. I can be literally on the other side of the planet, and I can text, and almost instantly, Laura receives my text. I can be on the other side of the planet furthermore, and I can, if I'm connected to Wi-Fi, I can FaceTime. And I can see her face. She can see mine. We can talk to each other. I don't have to be on the same continent as her. We can do that. No matter where you are in the world, instantaneous. But I don't believe anything has changed about the irreplaceable superiority of being with each other face to face. Like, and in some ways... I need you to hear this. In some ways, the advancement in our technology has um, obscured that for us. The advancements in our technology have convinced us that that's just as good, and it's just not. In fact, I think we have lost something real uh, in the advancements of our technology. I'm, I am old enough... I really am. I, I'm old enough, like, I put it this way. I didn't have a cell phone in college. That's crazy, right? I didn't have a cell phone in college. I, the, I, when I was in seminary, the iPhone hadn't been invented yet. And so when I was in seminary, one of the summers that I was in seminary, Laura and I were engaged. And um, I and my buddies for that summer had to do church planting work out in Las Vegas. I lived for a whole summer in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, but I had a cell phone, but I, we, didn't have, we didn't have an iPhone. What did I have of Laura? I had, a pic, I had a photograph that she sent me of her, right? And, like, we talked on the phone every now and then, but I didn't see flesh and blood Laura, whom I was engaged to for three months, Right? Uh, and there was, there was just something about the, the, the old phrase that, I, that the almost like, there's an old phrase, an old truth in the English language that we, almost just like doesn't have any meaning for us anymore. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. 
Like it really stinking does. It really does. There was something I think that, I think there was something that she and I felt like finally flesh and blood seeing each other after a long absence that we wouldn't have felt had we been FaceTiming each other all summer long. FaceTiming each other all summer long would have felt like uh, we're just picking up the conversation where we left off, you know? You get a sense of that if you, maybe not with your closest friends, but when you go somewhere else for the summer, like you work a camp or you work overseas, you, you haven't seen all of your friends all summer long. There's something about this time of year when you come back and you see face-to-face your people that you haven't seen in a long time. I mean, like, that's why, and it's also why watching church online is, is it's just a counterfeit in so many ways to being here with the church. You don't watch church. That's creepy. You are the church, and, you, and you, you're with the church. And, and, and watching it through a medium can never bring the blessings that physical presence can bring. Well, anyway, rant over. Um, those are just a couple of observations about his prayers. Paul wanted nothing more than to be with them. Now, let's note a few things about his plans in verses 13 to 15 before we take a close look at the main part of our text. So, I just said that the essence of his prayers was that God would provide a way for him physically to go to Rome and to meet with and visit the church there. But um, those, those, those were his plans as well. He, those were his prayers that were simultaneously what he planned to do. But he's, he's also much more specific about his plans than just, I want to go. He says what he wants to do when he gets there. He says, it, like I said, in verse 13, he wanted to, or 12, he says, I want to impart some spiritual gift that will be mutually encouraged. But in verse 13, he says, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, that's interesting. He wants to reap a harvest. Where? Among you, i.e., I want to reap a harvest among the believers those who are already believers in the church in Rome, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. That is, I want to reap a harvest among the unbelievers as well. I want, to re- I want to come, and when I come, I want to reap a harvest among the believers and the unbelievers. That's interesting. By the way, he amplifies on the unbelievers part when he says in verse 14 that um, he has an obligation to, both to Greeks and to barbarians to wise and to foolish. What does he mean by that? Greeks and barbarians. Greeks, he just means those who, unbelievers who had grown up, they're Greek in culture, they're Greek in language, they're Greek in everything, right? Um, What in the world does he mean by barbarians? Um, Well, barbarians, the name has a funny history. Um, Basically, barbarians refers to anybody, any non-Greek pagan person out there. Um, but the Greeks, where does that word come from? The Greeks, they thought their, their language and culture was superior to everybody else's. And so anybody without that, uh, they just basically made fun of them. And so they said, the Greeks thought that their language sounded funny. It sounded like bar, 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 bar. 
And so they called them barbarians. Like that was a, that was a making fun of them in their very name. Uh, but Paul didn't see the world that way. He saw, the, he saw those, uh, the most cultured and educated person in the world needs the gospel just as much as the lowest, silliest, most made fun of, ridiculed barbarian in the world. The gospel is for all. But I just want to note something about that word harvest. I want to reap a harvest among you and among, uh, uh, and among the others. Whenever we think about the word harvest, at least in church circles, we, 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 maybe we think about um, unbelievers coming to faith in Christ. Like we, we share the gospel and we reap a harvest of the unbelievers who have repented of their sins and come to saving faith. And that's not wrong. We think about it in terms of evangelism. That's not wrong. I mean, that's exactly the way Paul uses it here when he says, uh, I want to reap a harvest among the rest of the Gentiles. But Paul makes it clear that he also has some idea of a harvest among those who are already believers. Like, he says, I want to reap a harvest among you. And who's he talking to? A church of believers. And if that tells me anything, it tells me that we don't ever graduate from the gospel. Like, this whole letter is about the gospel. And if Paul goes to, to see them, he is bringing the gospel. And the gospel would reap a, a harvest of one kind among unbelievers, and that same gospel would reap a harvest of a different kind among those who are believers. What, does, what would that kind of harvest look like? I think it's a harvest of growing in godliness, growing to be like Christ in every way. A harvest of sanctification. Like, um, yeah, that's, that, think about uh, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, uh, 17, 18, that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. There is, there is sanctification that happens. There is growth in godliness that happens by your continued presence here. And that's what he's talking about. There, that's a harvest of a kind. Uh, and if you're a freshman here today, if you, if you, that, that comes from the gospel, the gospel again and again and again and again. If you're a freshman here today, if you hang around here long enough, you're going to find that it's true here. Like Lakeview is a church that takes the Great Commission seriously. Like we want to take the gospel to the nations where they have never heard so that Christ may have a harvest of believers in those places where His name to now has not been preached, around His throne. But we're also a church that, that for those who are believers, who come here every week, we are a church that gives a steady dose of the gospel every single week. You're going to hear it in the sermon after this one. You're, we're going to do the Lord's Supper today. And so, you know, you're going to see it proclaimed physically to you through the Lord's Supper. We don't ever grow out of the gospel. Don't, don't feel like if you come and hear the same old message every week that something's wrong. It's not wrong. That's God's design for you in the church. And it's on that note that we're going to spend the remainder of our time because this is where Paul turn, now turns his attention uh, to what's going to be the theme of the rest of this letter, namely, the gospel. He introduces it in verses 16 and 17, and he, this is what he's going to flesh out in fullest detail with this whole letter. Verses 16 and 17. Let's think about Paul's gospel. 
After all the talk about coming to see them in person, if the Lord wills, he says in verse 15 that he, he was eager to preach the gospel to them also in Rome. And he gets down to, to brass tacks about what he wants to say about the gospel. And he begins that letter-long discussion with two summary verses in verses 16 and 17. Let's look at those again. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul begins these two verses he begins it with the flip side of what he said in verse 15. In verse 15, like I just pointed out, he said, in verse 15, it's, I am eager to preach the gospel. He begins verse 16 with the flip side of that. I am not ashamed to preach the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's eager and he's not ashamed. Like that is, that is saying the same thing in, in opposite ways. I'm going to say it positively. I'm going to state it negatively. Eager, not ashamed. Why is he doing that? Why does he say it not once but twice in two different ways so that you get the point? I think he's saying the same thing in opposite ways to emphasize his own utmost confidence in Christ and his gospel. Why, do you, why would he want to be doing that? Um, well, if you remember the last week and, the, and a bit of the background information that I gave, Christians in Rome were not very popular people. Christians in Rome were a very persecuted people. They were not just ridiculed in, 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 in public. They were, they were arrested and, 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 and imprisoned for wrong reasons, unjust reasons, false reasons. Less than 10 years after this letter was written, this, this letter was written probably in 80, somewhere between AD 55 and 57. In AD 64, Emperor Nero was a nutcase, and he set part of the city of Rome on fire and then blamed the Christians for it and then rounded a bunch of the Christians up and crucified them along the streets of Rome. And when it started getting dark, he just set them on fire to light the city. That's the Rome that these Christians were living in. So wouldn't you might maybe just a little bit for fear be a little bit ashamed of the gospel? Be a little bit like... I'm just going to keep this to myself so that worse doesn't happen to me. I feel like Paul is emphasizing this point right here. I'm eager. I'm not ashamed. I'll come to you and I'll show you. He's first and foremost testifying to his own experience, but not, not first and foremost to his own experience, but first and foremost to encourage them to follow in his footsteps. Paul is writing this letter to Rome not just so that they and we would know the gospel and be very clear on what the gospel is, but that they and we, by extension, would be fearless and unashamed to share it ourselves. There are a, a number of reasons why they and we, I just, I just talked about them and the, the situation that they were living in in Rome. There's a number of reasons why we also might feel, we would never say it, but we might feel a little bit ashamed of the gospel. I mean, it could be, um, it could be fear of man. It often is fear of man. Like you're just, you're just afraid to share it. And that way you're, it's a way of being ashamed. Um, it could be embarrassment of the gospel. 
you wouldn't ever say that, but really that's what it is uh, and for some people because you, you know embarrassment because you know that if I share this, this message won't be received very well by most people in our culture. And you, you, the, the, the pull of culture and cultural acceptance is strong. Embarrassment. Uh, it could be ignorance that creates a, a fear of, uh, or an ashamed of the gospel. You might feel ashamed to, to share it because you don't feel like you know how to share it with somebody else. But Paul explains why neither he nor any believer ought to be ashamed of the gospel. And he gives several reasons here in verses 16 and 17. I'll, I think there's just three that I'm going to point out. First, he's going to say that there is no reason to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is able to take care of itself and hold its own against the most strenuous objections and ridicules of those who hate it. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. So he basically says, I don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because it is not about how persuasive we are. It is, it is, not, it is not even about how strongly and strenuously someone might have ridiculed Christians and ridiculed Christianity and stood against Christianity. It has, that has no bearing on it, how strongly they may have done that in the past. It is simply, Paul is saying, it is simply, did we share the gospel? Because to the person who has most strenuously, strenuously and strongly opposed, the, opposed Christians in the past, if the gospel is shared with them, the Holy Spirit can make that to that most ardent, critic of Christianity can make the gospel like a rock in their shoe that they can't ignore. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God because God is going to, to save His people. God created the world through His Word, and He's going to create His people through the power of His Word as well in the gospel. Proverbs 21.1. This, this is a great verse to memorize in terms of evangelism. Proverbs 21.1, not necessarily to share it with someone, but just to have it rolling around in the back of your mind as you go out. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So let that overcome your fear of man. That when you approach someone and you have an opportunity to share the gospel, take that opportunity. Don't let any excuse talk you out of it. Because the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You might not be sharing the gospel with a king, but if he can change the king's heart, he can change anybody's heart. Right? Paul's own story is evidence of that. So don't be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Here's the second thing he says. There isn't any reason to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel saves a person. The gospel saves a person. It is the power of God for salvation. Now, to an unbeliever, the gospel can save you. To an unbeliever, that, that sounds churchy. I don't know, what does that mean? Saves me. Like, uh, uh, you know, an unbeliever, at least immediately, doesn't feel like they need saving from anything. So what are you telling me? I feel like I feel fine. You tell me I need saving? But Scripture, that's, that's why... That's why if, if you can get a, an unbeliever just to read the Bible with you, that's a good thing because the Holy Spirit is a much better evangelist than me or you. And if, 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 if you took them to Scripture, Scripture has a long list of the things that we are saved from in the gospel. 
uh, I, this is a, a helpful list that was put together by Leon Morris, a, uh, a New Testament scholar. He, he, he notes a lot of the different things that uh, the gospel saves us from. One is, the gospel saves us from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God against our sins. Romans 5, 9. We're saved from the, it saves us from the wrath of God. You may not feel like you're under it, but you are if you're outside Christ. Number two, the gospel saves us from our own hostility to God. The very next verse in Romans 5, 10. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. God saves us from ourselves. Third, the gospel saves us from being alienated and separated from God. Ephesians 2.12 Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant's promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Scripture's like a mirror, a mirror that's being held up to you. You know, some dude may not realize that his hair is sticking up like that, but then he, he goes to wash his hands in the bathroom and he realizes his hair's sticking up like that. He didn't feel it, but it was. I may not feel like I'm separated from God. I may not feel like I'm under his wrath, but the Bible's like that mirror that says, You are. You are. The gospel saves us, fourthly, from, from our sins as well as its consequences. Matthew 1, 21, the angel comes and says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That doesn't just mean the consequences of our sin, but the sins themselves. The gospel saves us from being lost. Luke Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to, came to seek and to save the lost. We're just wandering around without Christ, not knowing, not knowing what's right. The gospel saves us from futility. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. The gospel saves us from investing our whole life, our whole life and spending our whole life on something that doesn't matter. And in the end, it's going to be futile. It doesn't matter. Finally, the gospel saves us from, or not finally, but next, the gospel saves us from a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A, a slavery to sin, because now we have the Holy Spirit in us. Even, even Christian saves you from, a, from legalistic obedience. Finally, the gospel saves us from a corrupt generation. Acts 2.40 And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It is easy. It is easy for anybody. It's certainly easy for someone who is not, has not been saved by Christ, doesn't have the Holy Spirit in themselves. It is easy to be content and happy and feel right in our waywardness and, and, and separation from God because it's, it's easier just to be like everybody around us. We're in a whole generation that's swimming that way. We don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save someone and it saves us from more than we realize we need saving from. But 
Third, we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because it is free to all who believe. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is unique to the gospel of any other religion in the world. You don't have to do anything. It's been done. Brother Al always, Brother Al always said, the gospel is, spelled, is not spelled D-O, but D-O-N-E. Done. Anyway. Um, the reason that it's free to all who believe is because of the fourth and final reason. You don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. And that is because through the gospel, we stand confidently righteous before God. For in it, he says... Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What does that mean, from faith for faith? That's a debated thing. I think it means just from faith from beginning to end. Faith from beginning to end. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It says the, in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. What does that mean? What does it mean that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? That phrase, righteousness of God, appears eight times in the book of Romans. Eight times. That's an important gospel idea. What, what does it mean? I, I think that the way Paul describes the righteousness of God, uh, he actually puts it best when he wrote a letter to the Philippians. And this is what he said about the righteousness of God in Philippians 3.9. That he wants to be found in Christ. Now listen carefully to what he says. Found in Christ, not having, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, from God that depends on faith. The righteousness of God is not just, look how righteous God is. In, in, in the gospel, the, the righteousness of God is that righteousness that He gives to you when you repent and believe. It's a righteousness from God, from Him, that, it, that is not earned by you, it was earned by Christ, given to sinners who know they have no righteousness of their own. And they put all their hope and faith in Jesus. Paul's going to have plenty more to say about every facet of this gospel. But I'm going to pray for us, and um, yeah, then we'll go, we'll go to big church. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for these admonitions. I, I pray that you would help us to remember the, the little things that we talked about, like the immeasurable and irreplaceable value of being with each other physically, face-to-face, whether that translates into the importance of discipleship, the importance of gathering as, as a body of believers, uh, valuing face-to-face -face over um, some other medium, digital medium or whatever. Or, uh, yeah, whether it's, it's remembering that the gospel is, is, is not just the ground floor, it's the whole building. We, that's, the, that's, the, that's the river that we swim in until the day we die. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember uh, why we, we have no reason uh, to be ashamed of the gospel. In fact, we have every reason to be eager to believe it and preach it ourselves as Paul was to the Romans. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.